Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined uh, once again by by two doctors this time, Fancy Dr. Roberts, uh, Alistair Roberts, and uh, Dr. Andrew Wilson. Um, so, Daw? I don't know. We'll have to come up with one for you. Uh, but but uh, Matt can join us today, but we've got uh, a three-man crew. And today we wanted to take up uh, kind of an interesting blend of articles, a couple of recent articles in different sources. Uh, Ross Douthat had a piece in the New York Times um, on his kind of like online, uh, I think it was a Sunday column, called The Myth of Cosmopolitanism, uh, taking up the issue of, well, cosmopolitanism and, and the kinds of, the, the, the kind of narrowness that uh, actually hides behind this myth that, that there are certain kind of cosmopolitan people who are, you know, they come from every race and background and, and creed and all this, but they're open and, and, and open to the world. And, and he kind of just points out actually, but you're, you're all very similar to each other and you're actually all very provincial in your universal values. And, um, and a, a similar article, um, somewhat similar though, very different in form. The, in the Hedgehog Review uh, called The New Ruling Class by Helen Andrews. And um, it's it's a lengthy, very interesting article uh, worth worth digging up. We'll post in the show notes um, where she basically argues that the meritocracy has replaced the arist- aristocracy. Uh, and that's not a new not a new insight. But I think the, the, the gist of it is that, you know what, that's inevitable. So just embrace it. Uh, embrace the aristocracy, uh, and that we ought to we ought to go along with it, and 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 and, and that that's, that is kind of like the natural order uh, of things, um, and that's probably a really bad uh, summary. But that was a setup for Alistair or Andrew to come in and either correct or offer up. No, I think that's a that's a, a good summary. But oh, there you go. You did okay. well. Now at that point. We move on to our next option, which is Alistair. Did you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> <laughs> I have a number of thoughts, but um, they'll probably come out of the period of the discussion. episode itself. But yes, more generally, if Helen Andrews writes anything, you should read it. She usually has incredibly long and thoughtful posts, and I've found her to be one of the most insightful commentators in um, the current context. Um, she starts off, starts off by talking about this notion of meritocracy and particularly Toby Young's um, description of it following his father, Michael Young, who was a British sociologist and wrote about the rise of the meritocracy. But one of the things that she gives a lot of attention to is the development of meritocracy and how meritocracy hasn't always seemed inevitable or hasn't always seemed to be a position that is naturally right. A lot of criticisms were raised about it in the context of civil service review, um, the changing character of the civil service within the UK. And when meritocracy was first suggested, it faced resistance. And it faced resistance for a number of different reasons. And it would be interesting to look at some of those problems that people identified with meritocracy within its early stages, and also how these things have played out. 
the context of many of these discussions of Tao that's peace and many of the other discussions that have been surrounding cosmopolitanism, meritocracy, these sorts of things, has been that of um, Brexit and other events like that, which bring into sharp relief um, divisions between classes within the UK and other countries. A class of people who have gone to university, who have further education, who have credentials, expertise, who are professionals, all these sorts of things, and who are connected to a more international um, group of people. And those who are very much based within a more local context, have more provincial values, etc. And so this has been a fodder for considerable conversation um, from commentators and other um, contexts over the last few weeks. And I've written a piece um, for Mere Orthodoxy, which in which I'll comment upon some of these things. So yeah. perhaps one of the places yeah. to s- start out would be to discuss... First of all, how we define meritocracy. So I'll throw this over to Andrew. <laughs> that was that was like an ambush. Like, okay, and so perhaps the interesting thing would be this thing I'm suddenly going to announce, which is not is exactly what I was thinking of, but not at all what you were thinking of. So, Andrew, why don't you tell me what you think about it? Um, I, Andrew, you're our you're our most <laughs> pithy definer. That that's well, that's I mean, what I you suppose do. Yes, well. that's exactly why we defer by, to you on these issues. <laughs> So my working assumption. I define things in ten thousand words. You can define them in <laughs> a tweet, um, a few sentences that are, um, yes, alliterative. Fewer words, among less insights. I think that's probably the <laughs> distinction between you and me, Alistair. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've always taken meritocracy, I suppose, in what I think would be a common sense that you know that somebody's uh, ability to do the job should be the only factor that means that they're to be given it and that we're, we're simply effectively appraising everybody in society simply on the basis of merit or suitability aptitude for a particular task which in some ways now seems so obvious that it's barely need barely needs explaining as a basis for doing things or even if it doesn't actually happen that way that's i think most people would just assume that that was the way you're supposed to do things and so what's interesting about reading this piece and seeing the way that seeing on what basis could you possibly object to it and then seeing that some of the arguments presented against it saying well actually if you just do it on the basis of merit then you will have hoi polloi rising up to senior positions in the civil service which might sound like a great idea but then they've got to deal with mps they've got to deal with you know men of gravitas and class and land and wealth that they don't have they might be bright but they might be poor or not brought up in the ways of the world and they're not actually going to be able to do the job ultimately as effectively if they've simply risen up on the basis of intelligence or what we would call merit and um and that's the argument. So that, or that's one of the arguments. Well, Alistair's obviously alluded to many. And I just think yeah, it's quite it's, interesting that, to that say that in, in a way, meritocracy is, is in the way that she's framing the first half of the article. She's saying this was actually never a thing, that the idea that you can appraise what merit truly is in the course of an examination for intelligence or whatever is actually, I think, illusory, at least as these people 100 years ago were saying. So in a way, they're saying if you make it simply down to someone's ability to do the job, you will find that ultimately they are not able to do the job because the things you're measuring are not the same things as the things they'd actually need to be able to do. And that class or whatever it might be, breeding, you know, those sorts of, they sound like 200 years old, but those things are actually part of what makes somebody able or unable to do a job. And I just think if you look at senior British politicians, you you can kind of see even today that hasn't completely faded. There are things that your upbringing and schooling seem to produce in people that 
although they're not based on intelligence, nevertheless seem to make people more effective at certain aspects of what politicians do. So I just thought it's almost like meritocracy understood that way is, is almost being framed as being something that was always, was, was never possible, but that the reason it wasn't possible was because people thought that you couldn't actually measure the things that would actually make somebody really good at a job. Um, right. So that, that's the way I, that, that was one of my takes on it. Quite an interesting critique. Well, one of the ones that I thought was on interesting. On that point, I think this. Uh, Go on, Derek. No, I was just, okay. So the thing on the same, in the same vein, the thing I thought was interesting was that um, there were worries about favoritism due to meritocracy. Um, and that, that was, that was fascinating because, you know, you think the whole thing before aristocracy and kind of inherited positions, you know, the worries that you have a bunch of, a bunch of, you know, rich morons inhabiting these, these positions irrespective of merit. But the worry was with the meritocracy is that you now have very, um, well, hard to measure measurements that make things very subjective and make things open to favoritism and again inserting uh inserting incapable people into these jobs um i just thought that was a really interesting way of of looking at the problem um along that critique at least as well as going to andrew's point um you you kind of you can kind of see the point in terms of you know if you have certain tests uh for you know greek or or uh, math or whatever it is that we're actually testing for, for some of these positions, but um, there's no, you know, relational intelligence or emotional intelligence, which is what, you know, experts are calling that sort of thing now, uh, which is not the kind of thing that you can test for, but which I, I suppose is what uh, is part of what um, aristocracy, you know, the, the educational system at the time was, was breeding for or called good breeding some of those things that we now have like technical terms for emotional intelligence for, for now, I think we're part of the package, so to speak. I don't know. This is, this is kind of a foreign context for me, given that I'm an American and I don't drink tea every morning like you two, but um, I'm just <laughs> relying on films and books. But. We don't Andrew, wear bowler hats. Andrew, anymore. what was your oh, well, experience with this? Andrew might. <laughs> what sir wilson <laughs> sir wilson what was your experience uh, I did, I did, sorry this is a weird avenue <laughs> alistair help us like you come in with what you're going to say <laughs> I just had to pull well that. what i was going to say is that perhaps one of the things that struck me from the article is the association of merit and meritocracy with measurement it's not just once you've got this idea of meritocracy, you have to merit, measure people's merit. And merit is measured by measuring people's intelligence and measuring people's... And it also leads to a culture that's based around credentials. And so it's not... It's also led to a situation where we tend to devalue, for instance, local knowledge, experience, um, relational knowledge. So we value the knowledge of the um, parenting expert over the parent. We value the knowledge of the young um, college graduate over the worker who's been working that particular job for a number of years but doesn't have the degree. Um, we value the expert um, sociologist 
over someone who knows the local area very well and knows people and has the relationships that really give them a, an ear to the ground on what people think. And in each of these ways, it's not just this um, neutral measurement of some quality that can't be disputed. It's a highly tendentious and questionable um, claim that merit is about what we claim it is. And when you're building a whole society upon the notion of merit that we assume, and we assume it, we don't usually argue for, argue for it, um, it leads to quite considerable injustice, it leads to marginalisation. And one of the things that she argues within the piece that I think is very helpful is it leads to a, a breach between classes. So increasingly you have technocrats and experts, professionals, doing jobs that would have been done by people within local communities. And so, for instance, as government is increasingly given to government posts, so increasingly given to people on the role, on the basis of a meritocratic system, increasingly you have government complexifying to justify it being meritocratous or what, however you say that word. Um, Meritocratic, that's it, sorry. Guys, somebody taught <laughs> Alistair you, a word today. <laughs> Mark it down. <laughs> sorry, it's been, a, it's been a long day already today. So when you think about it in that way, what you end up with is a breach between jobs that would traditionally have been performed by local people. For instance, the MP for a local area is increasingly someone who wasn't born there. And that's because you need experts to perform these roles because government has become so complex that it can't be done by regular people. And then the other problem that you have is increasingly you have credentialism, the fact that you have a college degree which is associated with meritocratic virtue. If you have the money to get a college degree, and it's increasingly about money and background rather than about academic skills, um, if you have that ability, the, the money in the background then you can get access to jobs that people without that won't have. And often it can be a sort of protectionism around a class. And this again leads to a breach between classes, classes who have these meritocratic credentials and those that don't, people who find their skills elevated because they jump through these meritocratic hoops, and those who can't because they don't have the credentials, they just have local knowledge, experience, etc., so relational knowledge, these things that don't register. And uh, yeah, Andrew, can you hear me? Sorry, did did you realise you just cut Alastair off in mid flow oh, and started murmuring something? Andrew. No, no, I'd more or less stop. Okay, <laughs> I'd more or less stop. Okay, so. well, no, I I'm I agree. I I think that this the sense of uh, the, the impossibility, um, functional impossibility of meritocracy, because people will continue will always want better for their children, and so if you have pri any privilege you have at all, will be passed on to the next generation and often amplified because you are likely to marry somebody who's like you, which means that you will both end up inputting your wealth or your intelligence or whatever it might be, or a combination of all of them into your kids, and thereby making them more likely to get up the ladder. That, that there's, so there's an impossibility of meritocracy that way. But I like Alice's point about measurement as well. It sort of assumes that we are able to count and quantify that which makes people effective at certain roles. Um, and the fusion of both of those things together is actually quite disempowering for people, uh, and in many ways more disempowering for people than the old aristocracy. And I think the thing that I found most interesting about this piece was that her, her proposal, which is basically let it let let the meritocracy become an aristocracy, don't try and fight it, it's not going to work, there will always be one. But but the way that she 
uh, I think I'm trying to find the exact phrase in which she said it. Yeah, my solution is quite different. The meritocracy is hardening into an aristocracy. So letters. Every society in history has had an elite. And what is an aristocracy but an elite that has put some care into making itself presentable? Allow the social forces that created it to continue their work and embrace the label. But then as it goes on, it's, it, it, she, she begins to talk about how, in a sense, there is a, a need for people to, um, to be held accountable for the kind of power that they have as a group. And that that's almost easier if you name it and identify it as an aristocracy rather than regarding it as being just a, uh, sort of but if people believe the myth of social fluidity and believe that class differences are not set and that people can anybody can get anywhere, which seems empirically not really to be true, except in a few exceptional cases that we make a lot of, then there is very little basis to hold people to account for the way that they're using their power as a class and as a group. And I think my sense was that she's saying one of the benefits of doing it this way and saying, I mean, I'm, I know it's not a concrete policy proposal, but the benefits of saying that is a, effectively an outstops. So let's treat them as such and let's hold them with account to account for that. And let's say here are the duties and responsibilities that come with it. The benefit of that is that, of course, the old aristocracy knew exactly what those things were. They knew I have this patronage. I knew I have a responsibility even right back to the feudal lord system or the patron-client relationships in the ancient world. I, because I have stuff, I now have responsibility and duty of care to those who are not in the same social part of the hierarchy as I am to provide and care for, which is not really true with unbridled quasi-meritocracy as such as we have now. And I don't know if I'm bringing that up. To me, that was the most interesting thing. She was the most interesting positive thing of her. Okay, sorry, Alistair, what were you saying? And that's a reflect in our language, for instance, the way we talk about um, the poor. We talk about... um, We'll talk about the deserving and the undeserving poor, for instance, thinking about poverty in terms of merit. In the past, they talk about the unfortunate, um, thinking about it more in terms of misfortune, in terms of someone's place within society that was not on account of their merit. It was on account of something apart from their merit. And as a result, those who were fortunate had to recognise that they had a duty. What they had was not something that they had earned. I don't merit my advantages within society. Those have been given to me. I'm fortunate. And as a result, I have a duty to those who are less fortunate than myself. Yes. And that way of thinking, I think, is often absent within this new meritocratic viewpoint. Yes. I do think her approach at the end is a bit too optimistic. In the light of what she has said before that, the meritocratic system has all sorts of problems. I mean, she she notices towards the end, for instance, that it's not that meritocratic, actually. She has this one particularly scathing passage. I'll see if I can find it. the Harvard it. thing. Yeah, she says... Um, Here we have the meritocratic delusion most in need of smashing, the notion that the people who make up our elite are especially smart. They are not. And I do not mean that in the feel-good democratic sense that we are all smart in our own ways, the homely wise farmer no less than the scholar. I mean that the majority of meritocrats are, on their own chosen scale of intelligence, pretty dumb. (laughs) Great inflation first hit the Ivies in the late 1960s for a reason. Yale professor David Galenta has noticed it in his students. My students today are so ignorant that it's hard to accept how ignorant they are. It's very hard to grasp that the person you're talking to, who is bright, articulate, advisable, interested, and doesn't know who Beethoven is, had no view looking back at the history of the 20th century, just sees a flog, a blank. And 
in these sorts of cases, I think we've all encountered some of this within university contexts, that there just is not the academic depth that you'd often expect, or the interest even. These the meritocracy is often a mask over a certain class privilege that people enjoy. They're in university because they have the university has increasingly become the means of entering and maintaining one's status within the middle class. It's less about academic merit. And when you have the university credential being the means by by which you get status within society, jobs within society, all these sorts of things, it causes problems because you rule out people who don't have that class background to be able to have access to that education. And some of the other things she observes, I think, are helpful along this line, that the best person for the job is often not the person that the meritocracy would select. Often it can be the person who's less qualified, the person who doesn't have ideas above their station, for instance, who can fill that role and throw themselves into that role without chafing at it. And it can be the person who has the local knowledge, who has the um, experience, these sorts of things that we devalue within the meritocratic system. And in all these ways, we are... I'm afraid that her conclusion, when she talks about is this new aristocracy that's being formed, and we should largely resign ourselves to that, but say that they need to be more aware of their responsibilities. I'm not sure that she's dealing sufficiently with her criticisms earlier on, which is a bit ironic considering how she starts it off, um, her piece arguing about the <laughs> observing the ways that some criticisms of contemporary social phenomena and other things like that have these scathing criticisms and then end up with these prescriptions that are really utopian and don't really relate to the real world and are idealistic. And in that way, they resign themselves to these realities. She resigns herself to the reality, but I think her prescriptions just do not go far enough in wrestling with the problem she's identified. Did you have an alternative prescription? I, I thought that was... Well, I was going to say, I thought that was kind of a... Um, I, I wasn't sure I, I wasn't sure what you guys thought about this because I thought that there was almost something Swiftian about it in that, you know what? The best solution is just to own that this is the reality and go with it and quit trying to muck around, quit trying to figure out ways of fixing it and just realize what you've created is another aristocracy. Just lean into it and, and, then, and then hopefully that will account for the gap. But I, there was almost something, I don't know, that the hands-upness of it was yep. felt half satirical, half not. I don't know. I, it, so it was kind of a, a shrug that says something. Um, that I don't know that that's the actual solution, but it's it's kind of a driving the point home um, uh, move. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you guys took that differently. I think there was but part I, I of that, that to was, it. Was, and also the sense that <laughs> the one thing that the meritocrats would hate is to be identified as aristocrats. They want to right. shrug off that, that label. That was... That was what I thought was kind of the, the driving rhetorical point of it. It's just, hey, guys, you've created another aristocracy, and that's okay. We've done this before. It turns out it's inevitable. Just go with it. Um, and I, I thought that was kind of a 
That was there was just an well, interesting that's, way that's of, what the, of, the only, of making that the only point, point I made in the in the article where I compared the two, uh, that this piece and the Ross Duthout piece you mentioned at the start, um, was the Animal Farm point really. And I, I think what what struck me is it just I was reflecting on both of the articles alongside each other. It's sort of the elite overthrows the old elite and then replaces itself. I mean, in some ways, it's a it's a very old story and it's an easy one to satirize. But I think it just it struck me how the the you know the sort of the they look from man to pig and pig to man and no, could no longer tell which was which thing takes place in almost exactly the same way in a meritocratic democracy as it does in a communist society. And yet, and, and it's, but, but the reason it isn't obviously apparent is because the, the things which prevent people from advancing and gaining the same level of privilege as other people are much less obvious because the codes applying to a meritocrat as opposed to an aristocrat in the olden sense are much less visibly marked. So you you watch Titanic and you see the people in, up, you know, in sort of first class and third class, and you, you just very very visible. Of course, in in our world, you can be the equivalent in terms of wealth and privilege of the aristocrat, and you could. I a friend of mine who was worked in worked in a very expensive. Um, so a shop that sold very expensive cars and just said you cannot disparage anybody for the way they come in you know the pretty woman thing you can't disparage on the basis of dress because a lot of the richest people who come in here will be looking like they are very working class in the way that they dress but they've got huge privileges and they in some ways there's a sort of rebellion against the class and privileges i have in the way people present themselves in the way they talk in their terms of phrase even in the way that they talk about their education or like thereof so there's just a lot of there's a, there's a there's a denial of that privilege mm-hmm. in the way that we and I include myself in this to some degree uh, will seek to present ourselves in public. It's not obvious who's who, and that means that the responsibilities that are commensurate with our privilege don't follow in the way that they used to. And I think that that makes some of the challenges you're raising in terms of the self awareness of that class and acknowledgement of who they are. It's quite an interesting an interesting aspect right. and, and, I've, and i've got a we've all got to see i mean all three of us sort of studying postgraduate university we've got to see ourselves as part of that thing as well and i, and I think just to recognize that inclination i know alistair's probably accent and general terminology probably does give him away quicker than some but you know we we do even even so we we dress down talk down and, and do our level best to make it look like we're not people of privilege in the way that we walk into a coffee shop or whatever it might be and I think that change versus 150 years ago is, is a really substantial one. So I'd be interested to hear you and guys. I'm, I'm nothing thoughts. like you two in this regard. <laughs> I'd be interested at all. I'd be interested to hear you guys give your thoughts on how this relates to the church, because obviously these are issues that affect our relationship with other Christians. Um, and I mean, these are often issues that affect our attitude towards church leadership, because People in church leadership are generally people with university education, with qualifications, credentials, etc. And we value these things um, very much in our leaders. Whereas often we devalue, as a result, practical leadership, um, proof of the ability of dealing with people, for instance. These things are important, but often we don't value those as highly as educational attainment and academic ability what do you think we should do to deal with some of these issues in our relationships with other christians and in our attitude to church leadership i mean I, can I, if i come in on that Derek, because i i, I just I, literally just yesterday no two days ago at dinner we were having exactly this conversation with a group of 10 of us the others are all older than me but but a group of leaders who are responsible 
in our context, we call them sort of they're like apostolic leaders, but in in you know they would be the equivalent, I suppose, of bishops or of guys who oversee or presbyteries, whatever guys who oversee multiple churches in the movement I'm part of. And we, we did this thing where we went around and said, who's got what education? And just, I don't know how it came up. I didn't initiate it at all. But, um, and you're going around and thinking, actually, several of the sharpest people here and the people who are much better at leading large churches and coping with complexity and overseeing people well were the people who had the, less, the least uh, educational attainments. And those who many have had the highest education were, you know, just in much smaller patches or much less and would recognize ourselves as being, like me, less able to do those kinds of things. And so actually to see it up front just 36 hours ago or whatever, to see it in front of me, was is just fascinating in the light of this conversation, which, because I was beginning to think about that a few minutes ago, that this in the church, that the kinds of virtues, probably it's more true in, in I imagine, in denominational contexts where Bible colleges are prerequisite, where MDivs are prerequisites, that actually a lot of people just get screened out at that point who might nevertheless be more effective pastors, church leaders, counsellors, all kinds of things, um, but perhaps less able just to study ancient languages or get their heads around church history and pass exams, which is not to disparage those things. I'd, I'd be the last person to do that. But I think to say and that often that's not it's the not only that they wouldn't be able to do those. Often it's not that they wouldn't be able to do these things. It's often that they just do not have the freedom that money gives and, that, and background gives to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here's here's what's here's what's interesting is that this is why and, and i'm not just i'm not just presby trolling but i do i do um for this reason think there's uh something helpful about the 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 elder structure in uh, pca church i'm at that you you've got you know the teaching elders and then you've got the ruling elders um and the teaching elders are you know the pastors who are you know, they've been to seminary, they've been ordained, they're trained to preach and teach the word of God and do some other pastoral counseling and care. Um, but the, the ruling elders are typically, you know, picked from among the congregation and, and, uh, they're, you know, we're in the process of choosing elders. Um, and we just have these massively competent people who just haven't been to seminary. Um, but they know the Bibles well and they, they're really effective in all these other ways um, that I, I kind of, you know, have, having that kind of structure where um, that kind of ability and that kind of knowledge can be recognized and incorporated uh, even while properly, I think properly valuing, you know, the kind of training needed to, um, you know, preach and teach the word of God properly and so on and so forth is valued. Um, now this is interesting because I, I, I'm in a congregation that's largely almost entirely the meritocracy just at base level. So I'm on the North shore of Illinois. So maybe that's skewed, but, um, but that structure I think is, is interesting just in terms of polity and being able to recognize the need for specialized training to handle the word of God and, so on and so forth. And at the same time, a, uh, broader, uh, broader pastoral and, you know, care structure that isn't limited only to seminary trained grads. The other interesting thing is on the flip side of this, um, American evangelicalism has had a large anti, you know, intellectual anti elitist streak in it. So you have guys coming up, uh, people building, churches and planning churches. And there's even some entire like 
pseudo denominations where the vibe is if you've been to seminary, oh, big deal. You've been to seminary. I, I've just been to a little Bible school or whatever. And, and there's kind of like an anti elitist streak that um, actually has, has had other, I think, negative impacts in the broader evangelical church uh, because of that and some of the anti-elitism, anti-denominationalism. And so, um, and I don't know that that has turned into a kind of replacement aristocracy in those contexts. Uh, if it is, it's or meritocracy. If it is, it's kind of a, it's a quirky merit that I, I can't, um, can't put my finger on. It'll, it'll be, you know, based on, you know, if it's more Pentecostal, more like a signs and wonders meritocracy or, um, I, I, I don't, from like my that. experience, so, I, I don't agree actually. I, I think there is, I think the, the, the social confidence and what you would call, if you were English would call class, um, that applies to m- many, if not most of the leaders of, ch- of large churches like that, who don't have seminary degrees, you would still find a very strong degree, I think of a, of a thing. I mean, it's difficult that data to prove this, but my, I guess my experience would su- would suggest that, that you'd have a very strong degree of social confidence, actually class values, ability to articulacy, public presentation, in, almost inevitably so, that actually even if people were saying, I don't have degrees, we, we don't think that that's necessary for everyone to understand the word of God. There is still actually a very highly centralized power structure to a lot of pl- churches like that where very similar kinds of people come through and lead them. It might be that exams are less important and a seminary degree is less important, but I don't think you would find sort of open to all access, you know, access available to everybody kind of thing. I think you'd still find quite a significant yep. class line dividing up who's at the top and who's not in churches of that nature, which in some ways reflects my own network denomination um, to a degree, um, no pun intended. Um, yeah. I, I think there's also a difference between people who are academically gifted being leaders within a community and the separation that is brought about by credentialism and meritocracy between those who are academically gifted and the rest of the population, where that group is constructed as a new caste or class of its own and then comes in in the form of external experts, professionals, these sorts of things to lead the communities. Because in the first case, what you have are people from within the communities themselves who are trained, who are gifted, rising up to assist and um, exercise leadership within those communities. In the other case, what you have are people creamed off the top of communities, taken off, formed into a class of themselves, and then put back into the communities as outsiders, as it were, class outsiders who are designed to lead. So you can have a society that is led by highly intelligent people who value learning, who are not anti-elitist as such, but who are not themselves a new aristocracy, a new class, who do not have this divide from the rest of the population by virtue of credentials and expertise. I think there's a philosophy and a sort of construction of society that's going on here that is more than just a matter of valuing or not valuing learning or valuing um, academic gift in our leaders or not valuing that. You can have all of those things and yet still not have this class divide. And I guess, I guess part of what I'm thinking about is again, maybe it's different in the the UK context, the, um, 
yeah, I mean, there's 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 just a certain anti anti elite. You have to be able to handle the word of God. You have to be able to preach. You have to be articulate. But um, maybe I'm just thinking of certain certain movements here in the states uh, that are that kind of have the strong, you know, anti-seminary, anti, you know, class bent. Uh, so that if you have that, that that actually kind of raises some suspicion. Well, I, 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 or I, so I'm. You have to kind of you have to kind of dress it down. I don't think anti-seminary and, and anti-class are the same thing um, at all. I, I think people are anti-seminary not because they don't not because don't, there's not usually a class point about. There's it. not like we don't want posh people coming in and doing it. It's it's it, there's a conviction really about the fact that you that in in at least in the Pentecostal context you're talking about is more about well but but gifting and anointing matters more than training and learning Greek yep. and Hebrew. I don't think it's about, I don't think it's a class issue. Um, I mean, I may have missed it's it. It's a relative value. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not even just, I'm not even just thinking about the Pentecostal context. I threw that out as like an initial, um, an initial example of what it might possibly be in another one. But I'm, I'm thinking just, just general, just generic, generic, non-anon evangelicalism. There is, there is a vibe and I can't put my finger on it when it comes to dressing down your, your your i don't know i, I want to say qualifications yeah there's definitely, an qualifications there's to, definitely to an anti-intellectual and so, so there, drive in some circles yeah in the sense of you know I, i'm not resting on the fact that yes I've, I've been trained to read greek and hebrew and sure i've been to, uh, i've been trained in systematic theology and these kind of disciplines and etc you know that, that's not really what's going into me being able to preach this sermon to you and why you should listen to me and and so that, that's not i'm gonna have to dress that down a lot so that you will hear me because i'm not i don't think i'm better than you i don't think i'm and so there's there there is something there there's a vibe there um which i think has an interesting impact in that you can move from different church cultures where where um the different kinds of uh virtues a pastor has will be valued um you know, so in some some traditions, it it is very valued that you know pastor's got an MDiv, maybe even more, and and others, you know, hey, he's 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 just he doesn't need all that. Um, and maybe maybe this is just a different different line of thought between class uh, that that you're thinking about. But when it comes to the issues of meritocracy and being competent for it, I I don't know. That's that's part of what. I mean, part of, of part so. of the issue with meritocracy, I think, is the idea of the skills that are needed um, to lead to um, hold positions of responsibility. These sorts of things; those skills are rather abstract. They're skills that can be ascertained through an IQ test, through things like that. They can be measured primarily through credentials that demonstrate your academic ability at a particular level, these sorts of things. Whereas a lot of what churches have traditionally valued in leaders um, and what we've recognised in leaders of societies as well has been a more particular bond, um, that what qualifies people, what qualifies someone to be a good parent, for instance, is not their expertise, not their knowledge of all the relevant parenting literature. It's their ability to show love to their children. It's their 
particular sensitivity to their children. It's that maternal and paternal bond that they have that is peculiar to them and to the child that they have. These sorts of things, or it can be someone's deep local engagement that they are embedded within this community. For instance, it's the pastor's love of his particular community, his regular visitation, the fact that he cares about them and prays for them daily. That is a qualification that's a rather different thing from the technical qualification that um, is more abstract, the ability to understand, prove his expertise at reading um, Greek. That is not necessarily telling us enough about his bond with this particular community. And the more that we value mm-hmm. that former bond, that, that former skill, expertise, often there can be a corresponding devaluing of the other. And I think that can be one of the dangers right. of meritocracy. The other thing that I find interesting that I'd be interested just before we close up to hear your thoughts on is how this creates a class divide within churches themselves. As you mentioned, your, Derek, your church is very much composed of people from a meritocratic background. And this has been my experience in mm-hmm. a number of churches I've attended. Um, and it seems that class is a very big reality within the church, particularly many evangelical churches, but it's not usually spoken about. So within the UK, evangelicalism can be a profoundly middle-class phenomenon in a way that you see working-class friends coming into the church and many of them just can't stick at it because the very atmosphere is somehow stifling for them. And I find that interesting. It would be good to have a conversation about this sometime, perhaps focusing upon um, the class, class and the church. But I'd be interested to hear you no, guys I, give thoughts I on would, how... I would completely agree that I think that's a huge topic that I'd love to talk about on another occasion. Um, and, I, I, and, yet, and yet somehow without the obviously self-referential irony of the three of us being the only people talking about it. But I think it would be interesting to talk to people who are involved in leading a much more working class community um, because I, I totally agree that's true. But I think often I find myself, I found with even training pastors, many some of whom are from much more working class backgrounds, but there's still this sort of quite self-loathing that dawns on the entire room as they all say, well, look, we're doing our best and yet we still can't do this what are we doing wrong? And no one sort of seems to know except that we should probably feel bad about it. And I think it'd be quite interesting how it's with people who have got a bit of history and track record in doing that better and breaking down some Definitely. Of um, I think the three of us, well, with the greatest respect to both of you, it might be the blind leading the blind to continue and have that conversation <laughs> in this case. But I'd love to come back to it. Yeah, that, that would be a great, great subject. Um, but for now, I guess we will wrap things up um, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, uh, feel free to share and, uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, but thanks again for listening. We will have the two articles in the show notes at mereorthodoxy.com, and we hope you'll hear us soon. <laughs> or, uh, if you'd like to, uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. If you have any, around any show ideas or questions you'd like for us to take up, we love receiving emails from our listeners. So with that, thanks for listening.